Brilliant. Thank you, Graham. Hello, church. Happy Christmas Eve. Hey, I see some lovely Christmas jumpers over here, by the way, matching pair. Brilliant. Don't draw too much attention. I'll get very embarrassed. Um, so our, our passage um, this morning is uh, from John 1, verse 14. So um, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, um, what we've got here is the this part of the, the first chapter of John's Gospel, the Word became flesh. Uh, this is the story of Christmas. This is when we have the eternal, infinite, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, everlasting, unchanging God of the universe taking on human form. He is God in human flesh, a supernatural event unparalleled in all of history. You may have noticed that this event is not prefixed with the common prelude where we might be accustomed to, the once upon a time. It's because this is a New Testament account. And like all of those in the Old Testament that went before it, it recounts an actual event that took place at a specific time. It can be corroborated with individuals and other eyewitness accounts. The Bible, unlike any other religious text, goes out of its way to, make, to place events within a definitive context. In Luke chapter 2, it explains that the birth of Christ in that context on that day, it talks about why Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, who was in charge at the time, who issued the census orders, and it's not left up to us to try and extrapolate why that happened, what they were doing, why they were going to Bethlehem, um, and who was in charge at the time. It was all clear, and the Bible makes it very clear. John is explaining to us in this, in this chapter um, what is happening from a divine perspective. So in Luke's gospel, we understand from the human perspective why those events were happening and where they were, but John is, explains it to us in a divine way. There we go. So this is the whole of uh, John chapter 1 up to 14. And so if I read it to us, if you have that in mind, that this is the divine uh, revelation here. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and, through, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, 
or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he was Word at the beginning. John said, the world was made through him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So the scene is being set. John makes no room for uncertainty. We are dealing with the highest high King of Kings, creator, author, and ruler of all creation. John shows us that the Word became flesh was actually God by virtue of his pre-existence. So in the beginning was the Word. Jesus was already in existence when all things which exist came into existence. He was not a created being. He existed before anything which exists existed. Okay. So at the point where everything began, he already was. He was with God and was God. He existed with God outside of time before creation of anything which was brought forth. He was also God. So what we're seeing here is one part of that great communion in the Trinity. The Word is distinct from the Father, yet having face-to-face communion with the Father. And yet he is fully God, as is the Father, three parts in the one Godhead. They are existing in perfect love, unity, and communion with one another. One God, the Word is God in the same way that God is God. The Word is not something less to God, or the messenger of God, or subservient to God, but the Word is God. Okay. So, God, the light of the life and light of the world, the light that darkness cannot overcome, came into the world which did not receive him, but he came with a promise, he came with a mission. John's gospel states that yet all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The statement runs counter to all we would expect inheritances to work. Those who received him are not the natural offspring. They are not able to become heirs through human deduction, decision, or uh, intervention, nor are they accepted because of their paternal lineage or a desire. But the word became flesh and comes with this promise of inheritance to people who should not be eligible. The word became flesh to those who could not be eligible. It's a promise of a divine inheritance to us as people who receive God. So if you've come to accept Jesus into your life and repented and believe in him, then this is the promise that God has for you and for us as Christians. We are children of God, adopted into his family and recipients of God's holy inheritance. We alone receive God's mercy and forgiveness of sins and his unmerited grace. 
because we have accepted him into our lives. We have repented and asked for forgiveness. So, I'm going to move on. So, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're told that the word became flesh, the word which contains the uncommunicable attributes of God, attributes which cannot be passed on to us, are there things only possessed by God himself. He does works that only God can do. He raises the dead, he overpowers the kingdom of darkness, and he forgives sins. The infinite takes on a finite body, and the eternal one enters time. The invisible becomes visible. In Greek, the word for the word is logos, and it's a term loaded with meaning for both the Jews and the Gentiles. So the word um, in Greek, logos, is used to describe the incarnation just once, and it's in verse 14, but is used three times earlier in this chapter in verse 1, without any explanations. When we're not given an explanation of why that's used, we have to assume that it doesn't need an explanation. If we understand that Greeks at the time understood their worldview and philosophy through a separate lens from one that we might do. And they recognized that the term used, logos, represented a kind of creative force, an organizing being, an intelligent mind behind the universe. They understood this as an abstract idea, not a god per se, but a creating force, a non-personal source of knowledge and wisdom, an intelligent designer, as some might describe that thing today. But John frames this event using that Greek word, trying to tell the Greeks that this is not an impersonal or abstract creation idea, that this is a person. It's a revolutionary idea that this all-powerful identity, this entity has become a physical man. A personal God has come into the world. And he essentially explains that this abstract creator and organizer became a man, became visible, tangible, and personal. It is not who they expect this creator being to be. Jews understood the Logos in a different way. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, it often says, and the word of God came to. The word of God came to Moses. The word of God came to David. The word of God came to Abraham. They understand that when we're talking about Logos, we're talking about God and his communication to us. The, uh, the Old Testament in uh, Psalm uh, 138, verse 2, says, You have exalted all things, and your name, uh, all things, <laughs> you are exalted above all things, your name and your word. You're setting up that God and the word have equality to one another. God and the Word are one and the same. So the act of becoming flesh was a supernatural event. God took on the fullness of humanity while remaining fully God. There are two natures. So this, this is a quite an interesting concept. So you've got God and you've got human, humanity. And they're two different natures. But in Jesus, they don't become mingled. 
so they're not, not mixed together, but they remain distinct from one another. They are fused together in an indivisible oneness. It's hard to, do, hard to get your head around, but this is, this, is the, this is who Jesus is. He is both fully God and fully man in one being. For in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay. He made his dwelling among us. God took on humanity and made his home among us. This is another revolutionary concept that John brings into this. The Bible makes it clear that he wasn't visiting or popping by or checking in, taking a vacation or an extended sabbatical. The God of the universe came and dwelt with us. He set up his camp and lives as we live, day by day. There is no fast forward to skip past all the dull bits and hard times in life. He dwelt with people like us, people like us who toiled, endured, got let down, grieved, suffered, hungered, worried, stressed, and aged. He experienced cold nights and winter days with exhausting heats of summers, human tiredness. He understood the horrible smells and nasty scenes in life. He's seen it all, and he did that for 33 years as a man among men with no physical indications that he was any different until his ministry began. The concept of dwelling with us compares directly tabernacle in the Old Testament. So the Israelites, if you remember, um, they had Moses um, led them in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, the Israelites set up a tabernacle for the presence of God to dwell in, and in which the, the cloud, which was the symbolism of God's presence, dwelt within this tabernacle. No one was eligible to enter that tabernacle as it was the meeting point between God and his presence on earth. Our mortality and our sinfulness could not exist in the same place as God's presence. And we are reminded that he is a holy God, perfect, pure, and glorious. He could not come into direct contact with us in our fallen form. So he dwelt among the people of God, but yet was still a far way off. Moses was given specific instructions on building this tabernacle. It's about where it was placed, how it was built, who could enter, which certain days, how to become um, sanctified in order to enter this, this tabernacle. This is a picture of it, by the way. Um, so why, why am I talking about the tabernacle? And um, well, this was God's. God often uses this. Oh, hang on. God often uses um, illustrations in the Old Testament to show us what the new would be. So this is a foreshadowing um, in the Old Testament. And so basically, in the in the Old Testament, this was the center of Israel's camp, as Christ is the center of our church. It's the place where the law of Moses was preserved, whereas Christ is the fulfillment of that law. It was the dwelling place of God, but Christ in human flesh dwelt among us. This was the place where sacrifices were made, yet Christ was the sacrifice for us. And this was the place of Israel's worship. 
but Christ is the center of our worship. So you see the parallels and the, and the change in the New Testament. So ultimately, the tabernacle was pointing towards Jesus Christ, who made his dwelling and tabernacled among us when he became a human being. I love this quote um, by Charles Spurgeon. It's basically saying, if God came to dwell among men by the word made flesh, let us pitch our tents around this central tabernacle. Do not let us live as if God were a long way off. So this tabernacle, people couldn't go in and see God, as I mentioned before. The presence of God would kill them because they were unholy, they were sinful. And God, while he was with them, he was distant. God has come to us and he dwells among us. He is the word made flesh and dwells among us. We can come to Jesus without that distance and separation. God is close at hand, closer than a brother. We are able to reach out and speak to him, and he understands and responds to us. And we beheld his glory. The verb beheld is invariably used by John um, as a seeing with the bodily eye. So seeing with our physical eyes. It is not used for the term of seeing a vision. John is speaking of the glory that was seen in literal form in Jesus Christ. The glory of God is something completely supernatural and uncontainable, unfathomable. We cannot define its attributes, and we have only the smallest glimpses of its majesty. Few in the history of, of man has ever seen God's glory, but never fully. Moses desired, to, desired God to show his glory. And so great was the magnitude of God's glory that Moses' earthly body would probably have died in its presence. God says to Moses that you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in that rock, and I will cover you with my hands until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The appearances of God's glory was enough to leave a lasting impact on Moses' earthly body. It says in the Bible that he reflected this light, and his face shone, and the Israelites were scared. The appearance of God's glory often includes light and brightness, the striking thing about Moses is that, from, is that from God's appearance, he reflects himself through Moses, who has seen God. This radiance of Moses anticipates this climax of Christ. Christ is the radiance, the glory of God, as it says in Hebrews. In a manner similar to Moses' reflection of this glory, we as Christians who have communion with Christ are transformed to reflect the glory of Jesus. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We who believe are being transformed into the reflection of Christ. God's new tabernacle is within us through his Spirit dwelling in us. 
God hasn't stopped dwelling with us, but He resides with us and works through us to accomplish His will. While none of us are becoming Christ, we are instead reflecting Him to everyone we meet. We are called to be like Christ, to set our minds on the things above and to do His will on earth. The tabernacle contained God's glory, and only a few select priests could enter this on holy days. Yet God, through Jesus, has cleansed us of our unrighteousness and our sin. This washing allows us to become the tabernacle of God, where His presence and glory are manifested. It's mind-boggling to comprehend God in His glory and the fullness of, of His eternal majesty entering this world as a human in the most, most pathetic of forms, a baby. We're reminded that Christ, God, the Word, went from existing outside of time as the all-powerful Creator before all of existence to becoming a helpless baby. He suffered the indignity of drooling and pooping and crying, he, all of this so that He might come and dwell with us. Yet his glory didn't leave him. It didn't get bottled away for another time. John says that we beheld his glory in the flesh. And this is the heart of the Christmas story. This miracle, this one-time event, when God took on the form of a human and dwelt with us, this is the joy of the world that we sing about. But what good is this fact if we accept that the Word became flesh and dwelt with us, if we accept that that is true, then why is it good news to all humankind? Why do we celebrate this incarnation of God as a man? Would God not just be better staying in heaven, ministering to us and making things good and pleasing for us as we, as we pray to Him? These are our desires, of course, but this is not what we, what we see in life. This is something that God designed us for in the Garden of Eden, but it is, and it is what we desire to return to, for that's what we were made for. The barrier of sin and death holds us away from those desires. We cannot enter the gates and dwell with God where He is, for we are marked with the sin of the world. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can't find rest. We can't find shalom in this life in our own power. We can search for temporary reprieves. And there are things in this world which can satisfy, but they do not last and they come at great cost. There is only one way to true fulfillment, happiness and peace the Word Himself, Christ, the baby born at Christmas, God eternal in human form. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the reason and the purpose of the Scriptures. Christ is the fulfillment of the Bible, the good news and the reason that we celebrate. The Word became flesh dwelt among us, suffered as we suffered, exposed to the worst in life. He was fully God, fully man, in a fully fallen body, but one which didn't suffer the sinfulness of our nature. But he did suffer the, the indignities and awkwardnesses of our current existence. He remained holy 
undefiled and pure. His glory was not dampened. His divinity never set aside. John describes him as full of grace and truth, the truth in a world full of lies and darkness, the word full of grace. One look at Christ's ministry shows a life of grace and goodness that none deserve. At this time of year, we're being bombarded with all sorts of images and narratives, happy Christmas celebrations, celebrations overflowing with food and fun and the joys of life. And I'm sure we all aspire to enjoy these things. And there is no shame in enjoying those sorts of celebrations. Though, if we are being real with ourselves, we must concede that at this time of year, attaining some, if not all, of those fictions is likely impossible. Even the most fulfilled of us knows deep down that there is something missing in life. Christ came into this world because we are utterly deceived by our own sinfulness. We are cast adrift in this world, lost forever to our own capricious justifications and desires. We're living in a narrative centered on us, our families, our circles. Christ took on human form because we need our Creator to save us from ourselves. He dwelt with us that we might experience His glory, grace, and truth, and make it possible to be saved. And finally, the ultimate reason and climax of this account takes the form of a wooden cross. This was the decisive culmination of the words, 33 years of life in human flesh. The sacrifice of Christ's physical body and the shedding of blood for us, Christ's sacrifice paid the debt of sin that we have all accrued. The eternal God, the Word who existed before else, dwelt with us, suffered, and was put to death for us. For all who believe in Jesus, who repent and accept forgiveness, are now able to be saved saved from the consequences of our own sins and a consequence we know leads to eternal death and separation from God. It's a debt we cannot pay on our own. Only the death of Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, can forgive those sins. The Word made flesh, the King of kings, who endured those 33 years of human existence, yet remained perfect, glorious, pure and holy, this is who we celebrate, and upon who we have assurance that we might be saved from the punishments of the punishments and called children of God. So if you're hearing this today and you know that you need to make things right with God, know that He has made a way for all to come to Him. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, He alone has the authority to forgive our sins. Because of his sacrifice on that cross, we know that we can come to him, confess our sins, repent, and we will be forgiven. This is the joy of the world, the promise of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, the access to the Father and the fullness of life. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Joy for all who hold fast to Christ. For all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's gifts of mercy and grace, we rejoice together in the miracle of the world, the Word becoming flesh, a true Christ.
Christmas celebration. So, Father God, we thank you so much for this, uh, this word becoming flesh, for you coming and dwelling among us. We thank you, God, that we can come together as a church, as people who have accepted you into our lives, and we can worship you together. We thank you, God, for all that you're doing in our lives. And we pray, Father, for those who have not yet come to know you. We pray, Lord God, that you would bring them close to you and that you would save them. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. We celebrate you. You are the divine, amazing, holy, powerful, awesome God. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy upon us. Amen.